Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been going over various prayers in the Bible through this summer, and uh, what we had done as, as elders, we chose prayer as a theme for this year. And uh, we wanted to do this summer series, just kind of going through different prayers in the Bible that we see and working our way through them and understanding these prayers and how can we grow in our prayer life from them. And so, you know, last week, Jason covered how we could pray for others the way Paul did for the Philippians. Um, you know, before we had covered like prayer, prayer like David um, in Psalm 6, Psalm 23, we talked about the prayer like the disciples in Acts 4. And today we're going to be covering prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was facing death and calling out to his father. And I think that each one of us have learned something in a classroom setting, right? I remember in college, um, I went in and took accounting, right? And my accounting teachers are saying, you know, accounting's an art, right? We're going to teach you the nuts and bolts, but how it gets done in the real world is, is somewhat different. And you know, now I work in business and stuff, and I can say that is absolutely true, right? We learn something all, all the time in classroom setting, but how it actually looks in real life, how we do it on the ground, how it happens out in the world is often different. So one thing that Jason did a few, uh, well, it was probably about six weeks ago, is you had the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray, right? And he gave them some guidelines, right? You don't, you don't do this out in public on the street corner, you go in your room quietly, you know, you don't do it the way the hypocrites do for your own glory. You do it quietly with the Lord, you know, and then he gave them the Lord's prayer. And you're going to realize like today, when you stop and think of the Lord's prayer, how Jesus taught them to pray is very different than how he prayed here in the garden. You know, so having that kind of academic knowledge of here's what's in a prayer, that, that's something that's great, but that's not always how we do it, right? We think of that ACTS acronym, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And that is a great model for prayer. We should use that frequently. But there are times when we're in anguish, when we're suffering, when we're confused, when we're worried, when we're hurting, where it's okay to just call out to the Lord and not have to follow a model that's that's real specific like that acts thing so jesus taught them how to pray in peaceful times with the lord's prayer but now he's showing them how to pray in the midst of extreme suffering i think for us uh you know here in america we have it fairly good right and so i think sometimes deep prayer almost gives us a feeling of guilt and it's not the kind of guilt we should feel right we should feel guilt for our sin and be in confession and repentance but sometimes when we stop and we're in anguish, sometimes it, I think sometimes we can feel guilty about it because we know there's missionaries out there giving up all the comfort and all the, the security and things like that that we think we have. And they're going out on the mission field and they're suffering for the Lord. Or we know that there's people with no food and no water who have much more serious felt needs and, and extreme like just, you know, food and drink and water and shelter needs that we think our little suffering here is nothing. Right. And it's almost like we feel embarrassed or guilty to take it to the Lord. Or we have trite prayers, right? These kind of things, you know, thank you, Lord, for this food. Bless this food and amen. Right. And it's this quick thing and it's repetitive. And it's, you know, so it's almost like we we tend to back away from prayer as a, a serious means 
of communing with our Lord. And we see Jesus here today dives headfirst into prayer, calling to his Father. And we can do the same thing in our lives, even in the little things. So there's kind of three ways this breaks down here. And as we go through Matthew 26, starting in 36 and going to 56, we'll see, first of all, Jesus knows, even before he's praying, he knows the Father's will. We'll see that in verses 36 to 38, right? None of this is a surprise to him. And then we're going to see how Jesus, even knowing the Father's will, still appeals to his Father, right? He appeals to his Father's will in 39 to 44 that Jesse just read. And then we're going to see at the end how he surrenders to God's will. And we're going to see why that is. And we're going to kind of break this down and see why Jesus would surrender himself to being crucified. So let's get started. So first of all, we're going to start in verse 36. And it says this. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So to kind of get into the story and put this in context, right? Jesus and the disciples were just in the upper room having the Passover meal. He just instituted the Lord's Supper, right? Breaking the bread, drinking of the cup together. And uh, we know that Jesus has been telling the disciples and telling those listening and following over and over again that he is going to be crucified, that he is going to be given over. And even just in chapter 26, in verse 2, he said, the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. In verse 12, he talks about Mary anointing him with the perfume, and he says, she has prepared me for burial. In verse 25, he outs Judas and says he is going to be his betrayer. In verse 28, he breaks the bread and drinks of the cup, and he tells his disciples this is his body broken and his blood shed. So again, we know why Jesus is sorrowful, and it's that he knows God's will is that he will be the propitiation for our sin, that our sin will be put upon him and his righteousness will be put on us and that he'll face crucifixion the next day. And also the word Gethsemane, this word carries a deep, deep meaning because the word Gethsemane means olive press. So it's among this garden, right? And so people who had, you know, olive trees and they would harvest, they would come to a press, right? And they would squeeze those olives to get the oil. Let me stop and think about this. What is oil used for, right? It's used for cooking, right? It's used for things, but it's also used to anoint a king, right? When a king is coronated. So a king gets coronated with oil. And here Jesus is in the place that's a source of that oil, right? For an anointing as king, right? He's our prophet, our priest, and our king. This also harkens back to Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 5, when Isaiah is foretelling the coming Messiah, he says that Jesus would be crushed for our iniquities. And he says in verse 10, it's God's will to crush him, right? So even just this Garden of Gethsemane, the name of it even points to the fact that Jesus Christ will be crushed, that he faces this imminent, imminent judgment upon him because of the sins of the world being put upon him. Something else we want to look at here, Jesus took three of the disciples with him further. So he tells some of the disciples, you stay here, 
He tells three disciples, come with me and watch with me, right? Gives them an action, watch with me. And he took Peter, James, and John. So why those three? So if we look at Mark 10, right? James and John said they could drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that Jesus would have, right? Essentially, they were saying, we can die with you. And here, Peter, in the verse just before this passage, said that he would follow Jesus even to death. So Jesus is bringing them along, and he's showing them the true anguish that comes along with true service to God that would lead to death. So he says, come and watch. He's inviting them in. Come and see what this is, knowing they're going to face it themselves in the future. I think something else that you and I can take away from this is Jesus chose not to be alone, not to suffer alone, not to pour out his anguish and prayer alone. I think a lot of times as humans, right, we, we don't want to necessarily show our weakness or lose our dignity, or we don't, we don't want to burden someone else with our problems, and so we sit and quietly bear them alone. And we might be calling out to God in anguish, but we're not pulling in the people who love us and care for us and want to help us. Instead, we suffer alone. But Jesus gives this master class in prayer through hard times here. He's showing this weakness of the flesh, and he's crying out to God in his weakness, and he's inviting his friends to come and join him in this anguish. He's going to take the full wrath of humanity's sinfulness on his shoulders, and he knows God's will for him. And the sorrow he feels is even unto death. And so we see that Jesus knows the Father's will. There's no surprise. There's nothing here he doesn't already know. Yet, he still appeals to God in his will. So it says this in 39 to 44 that Jesse read earlier. It says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the words again, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So look in there in verse 39, he says, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. We think about this, this posture, right? We're not a people that bow down to anyone, right? We see that as un-American to bow down to anyone or anything. You know, when we've had presidents who've bowed to foreign leaders, the press explodes saying, how on earth can they do this? Why are they doing this? It's controversial, right? We're not people that bow. And unfortunately, sometimes I think we take that even into our prayer lives, that we don't bow, that we don't show God this, this you know, this heaviness. We don't take it seriously. That's not to say we have to get on our knees and bow down every time we pray. But there should be times we do. 
even in prayer, we think we can keep some sort of dignity in front of our Lord who knows everything we've ever done. But Jesus' example, right, the guy who was perfect, who had nothing to have to atone for, still bowed down to his father. What makes us think that we shouldn't bow down to our father? Jesus showed us perfect humbleness and submission in this prayer. And he calls out to him, Abba, Father. When you see it in in, uh, some of the other gospels or you see maybe in different translations, it's Abba, Father. And this is a familiar term, right? It's not a, a formal term. It's not a title. He's calling out to dad, right? He's calling out to the one who loves him, cares for him. It's an intimate name, not a formal name, a familiar and loving name. And it's a familiar and loving name we can call upon because we are adopted in Christ. And it says this, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And if you kind of take this verse and you put it against this account in Mark, you'll see Jesus says it differently in Mark. The way he recorded it says, all things are possible with you. Take this cup from me. So it's not, it's not like a question. In Mark, Jesus is saying, I know you can do this. Do this. He knows an all-powerful God can do anything. We might say, no, no, God couldn't do that because Jesus had to die and stop and recognize he didn't have to die. He chose to die, right? He could have left us in our sin. He could have left us in our shame and let us fall under judgment and let us go. So we stop and say, well, why didn't he? Stop and think about this. God had already made a promise, right? He made a promise to Abraham. He reiterated that promise over and over again. So while God could have pulled Jesus out of this situation, he didn't because he keeps his promises. And Jesus knows this. And even in his fleshly uh self, he wants this to pass from him, right? Nobody wants to be crucified, but he knows his father's perfect will is to fulfill this promise, and that promise includes his death. Three times he prays this in desperation that God's will be done, and three times he finds the disciples asleep. So he goes over and he prays, and he comes back and he finds these men sleeping, and he kind of, he gives them an exhortation. You know, you can't, you can't stay up with me. You can't keep watch with me. And he goes back and he prays again. And he comes back over and here they are asleep again. And he goes and prays a third time. And he comes back over and he finds them asleep again. You think of this, right? We're like those disciples, right? If you're like me, you've fallen asleep while praying. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's a, a lab. Loretta and I usually pray at night as we go to bed, and there are times we have fallen asleep. There are times that I say amen, and she wakes up, yep, huh, yep, or she says amen, and I wake up. It's, it happens, right? We're in the flesh. We're weak. We're tired. At the end of the day, we're exhausted. But here, Jesus is in the deepest prayer we're going to see in the Bible, and they're falling asleep. But think about it like this. Jesus goes and prays to his father, right? If this can pass from me, let this pass. Take this cup from me. And when he turns around and he finds these disciples sleeping, 
He sees the very people who the promise is going to be fulfilled for. And they're asleep, right? These three guys who said, we can go with you even to death are asleep, right? He sees these tired and weak humans in their sin who cannot even stay awake. And he prays again. Three times this happens. Each time he's being reminded of the promise made, right? He's coming and he's praying and then he's seeing, nope, this is the reason you're going to die to save these people. I think there's times that we've all faced something and felt alone, right? Jesus is in this, facing this, what feels like alone. Obviously, his father is with him. We know that the father will turn his face away upon the crucifixion. But we know that Jesus is not alone because his father's with him. But among his disciples, he feels alone. I think you and I have probably been through this, times when we felt like we're suffering through something alone, maybe a, a worried medical diagnosis, maybe we're caring for a sick parent, maybe we're parenting and we just don't have friends around or people just don't seem to understand and we feel alone. I can think of times I've faced a situation and I've reached out to friends and asked for you know, prayer or accountability or something like that and they never bring it up again. And I can think of times that people brought something to me asking for prayer and accountability and I've not brought it up again, right? We're weak. And sometimes we feel very alone in our suffering. And we let each other down, but God never forgets us. He's always with us. When we stop and think back to Psalm 23, right? We went through this a while back, right? The Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're never forgotten. And Jesus is not forgotten here. When we think about David and times he felt alone and he called out to God in anguish. And there's times we feel alone and we call out to God in anguish. I think we recognize in our fallenness that we are sheep in need of a shepherd, sinners in need of a savior. And then we stop and see how Jesus surrenders to the Father's will. After seeing these disciples asleep each time and remembering and recalling that promise made, says this in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given him a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came upon Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple preaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be, might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Jesus again shows perfect submission and he states this, right? I can call the father and he can send armies of angels and stop all of this. But how will scriptures be fulfilled, right? The promise, the promise God made. So Jesus shows perfect submission here, three prayers to God. And when he sees the crowd coming, he's got his answer. He knows there's no other way. He will die as a ransom for many. Now notice how the disciples are ready to fight. They're ready to fight. You know, we know from other gospels that Peter's the one who took his sword and cut the ear off of the servant. And Jesus healed that servant's ear. But when it comes down to the real fight, Jesus fights it alone, right? They, fle they flee. They're ready to pull a sword and defend. But when it comes down to Jesus being arrested and they know what's going to happen and they see him submitting to it, they run. They all run. He knows what God's going to do. But you notice that Jesus' faith in the Lord is not shaken, right? In verse 53, he knows his father can overcome, but he's choosing to do this for his perfect purpose, that his judgment would be poured out on Christ. So let's dwell on this for a moment. Jesus is here facing death with peace. We know as he goes and gets interrogated, he's peaceful through it, right? He submits to it. And we sit and think, how on earth can this happen? But we understand in the light of scripture, why? So when we stop and think about it and we say, you know, here's Jesus praying in the garden and here's how we pray and stuff, right? Jesus has this perfect understanding of God's will. He knows it inside and out. He's been a part of it all through creation. We as created creatures don't know God's perfect will all the time. We have hints of it. We have a scripture. We have Bibles that give us a good insight into it, give us the tools to try to stop and understand it and discern it, but you and I can never truly, fully, 100% know it apart from the promises he makes us. And Jesus perfectly appealed to God's will, right? So when we go through things, right, Jesus perfectly appealed to God. He wasn't wrong to go to God and say, please take this cup from me. And it's not wrong for we as created creatures to go and appeal to God's will. So even when we have a cancer diagnosis or some big extreme thing happening, or even little things happening, we can always go to God. We can always cry out to him. Nothing says we have to stop and just stoically hold this in. We can go to our God and we can appeal his will. Even when we know his will, we can still appeal it. We do so with respect and wisdom and submission. And Jesus perfectly surrendered to God's will, and we often fight God's will, right? We want to argue it. We want to deny it. We want to disclaim it. We want to move away from it. We want to even cry out to God and make accusations, and he knows us. He knows our weakness, and he can take that, and he can mold and shape us through it. So Jesus' example stands before us. We think of 2 Corinthians 5.17, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Right? We're not that same sinner lost in our, our, our sinfulness when we are in Christ. When we know and understand Christ and trust in him, we are a new creature. And we have the Holy Spirit who moves and shapes our hearts, who can help us and guide us and teach us how to go from desiring our own will to being willing to submit to God's will. I think this looks for all of us different in different ways. For the disciples, let's kind of break down what this means to these disciples who just sat here in the garden and took all this in. So Jesus faithfully appealing to God's perfect prayer, perfect will and face down. His disciples all faced a similar calling to lay down their lives for God later on. So Simon Peter died during Nero's persecution around 65 AD. It's believed he was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross and states that he was tied to it for several days before he died and that while he was tied to it, he preached the word. James, son of Zebedee, one of the three that went and sat with Jesus and fell asleep while Jesus was praying, was beheaded in 44 AD by King Herod I. He was thought to be the first disciple to be martyred for the faith. Jesus, or I'm sorry, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was exiled to Patmos, the island of Patmos, and later died in Ephesus. It's believed around 100 AD. Philip was hanged in Hierapolis, Turkey in 80 AD. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, ministered in Armenia and was later flayed to death in India. Matthew is believed to have been martyred in Ethiopia. Thomas, known as Didymus, was believed to have been impaled by a spear near Madras, India in 70 AD. Thaddeus, who worked with him, was martyred in Persia, shot through by arrows. Simon the Zealot was believed to have been crucified. And of course, we know Judas Iscariot hung himself after betraying Christ. So the only one who likely died a natural death is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The rest were put to death in one way or another. I want us to kind of stop and, and take a second here, right? We're not just called to give our physical bodies over to God in the name of Christ, right? We're called to give our daily efforts. And you and I may not face this kind of persecution all the way unto death. We know our society is very much uh, turning away from the faith and stuff. We don't know what we might face or how extreme things could get but we're blessed to live in a relatively peaceful society toward Christianity. And I think for us, you know, we almost feel guilty sometimes taking our, our gripes to the Lord because we have it so good. But I don't think we should because we may not be called to physically die on a cross or be shot through with arrows or flayed or, or shot through with a spear, but we are called to die to ourselves every day. And sometimes I think in some ways that's almost tougher because it feels like an option, right? If I was told I'm going to be killed for my faith, I may not have, I have no choice in that, but to recant or stand strong in the faith. But in our day-to-day -day lives, when we're called to deny ourselves and take up our cross, when we're called to die to ourselves and serve the Lord, it feels like an option, right? I got next week, I can do that. I could do that tomorrow. I'll take care of that in the future. Sometimes that's a bigger struggle 
and the stakes don't seem as high because there's always another time. So I think some one of the ways this translates to us in our modern day is the calling out to God in our day-to-day walk in the hurts and the pain and the struggles and the suffering. Just because we might sit there and academically say, hey, this is a first world problem doesn't mean we don't struggle in it. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't call out to God in it. As fathers, right? As fathers, we are called to lay down our lives for our bride as Christ laid down his for the church, right? We're called to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And this isn't always easy, right? If you're like me, and I think a lot of guys probably do this, we've kind of got that like cabin in the woods that we can retreat to when things get stressful, right? We can retreat into YouTube. We can retreat into sports. We can retreat into places when we are called to lay down our lives and sacrifice. It's much easier to just pick up a cell phone and think about something else. It's easier to sit and dream about, man, if I just could be in the woods for a couple of days by myself, right? We tend to want to get solitary, but that's not what we're called to do. So do we spend time in true and deep prayer for the strength to continue on? leading our wives wisely, leading our kids wisely, raising them up when everything's crazy? Do we sacrifice our wants and desires to serve the way God called us to in our family? Do we have that faith to lean into our calling? I think think what happens when we do call out like that, we call out in anguish, God, give me the strength to lead these kids, these crazy kids, they're so loud, right? And then what happens, right? We turn around and we see them at the dinner table and they need us. They need our guidance. They need our wisdom. Our wife needs our support. She might be asking you for guidance and wisdom of what to do in those situations, right? And rather than pull back into that kind of mental cabin in the woods or pick up our cell phone, are we in deep anguish prayer? God, give me the strength to do this day after day, day by day to do wisely. Moms, I know you deal with the same kinds of things. It may look a little different, right? You sacrifice your bodies and your 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 uh, your desires and stuff like that to be mothers and wives. A lot of you maybe put aside a career. You put aside the times you want to go and be social with others because you've got nap schedules and housework and meals and part time jobs. Sometimes you have you're you're both working mom and and home. And you have this call to endurance and perseverance that is never easy, right? Your husband may not make it very easy to submit when that you're called to. That can be so difficult. And that repetition of housework and meals and crying kids and taxi duty in the minivan can wear your patience to the bone. But do you call out to God in this anguished prayer and lay it on the line and say, God, give me strength in this calling? may not be called to die physically, but to die to yourself in service to your family. And you turn around, you look in the rearview mirror, and you see those kids in the pumpkin seats, right? And you see, just like Jesus saw his disciples, the ones he was called to serve and lay his life down for, you see those kids that you're laying down your life for. And through that prayer, God can strengthen us to face those callings. When you're a teenager and you're trying to figure out where am I going in life? What's my options? Why are my parents so weird? Why am I in this family? Why do I go to this school? 
Where am I supposed to go after this? What college should I choose? Should I date this girl or that boy or whatever, right? These things all come up. And you've got an entire world that wants to sell you a worldview that does not square with the Bible. And they'd love to teach you all these glamorous mistakes that you can make that may look like fun and may look like joyful things, but end up leaving you empty and hurting. Do you go to God in deep prayer for guidance and wisdom to what God's giving you and then turn and see your friends making these mistakes and say, you know what? I want to be there for them when they need Christ. I want to, I want to teach them and minister to them in the Lord. I think one of the tough ones that I see, I, you know, my mom's here and I know she helped take care of her mom for years. And when you're a kid parenting your parent, right? This happens a lot for people in their 40s and 50s and 60s who are caring for parents in their 70s and 80s and 90s. When all the stress and strain of all those years of, of dealing with them and the mistakes they made with you and the things that you've been hurt by and things they've been hurt by and all those things stack up yet you watch your parents kind of come back into childhood and they need help and they can't remember and they need to go to doctor's appointments but they can't drive anymore and you're just fed up fed up with it do you go to god in deep and anguished prayer saying give me the strength to parent my parent and to have patience with them, and to have wisdom with them, reminding ourselves that they need, they need cared for. In our day-to-day -day lives, we're called to put ourselves on hold over and over again in so many different ways, and it's not easy to die to self and do so. I struggle with it horribly, but when we go to God in deep and anguished prayer, help me die to myself when we turn around and we see those in need, we can be there for them because the strength of the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. So just as Christ knew the Father's will, we often know the Father's will. We know what we're called to do. We can appeal it. And sometimes God may change that circumstance and sometimes he may not. But in the end, when we're in Christ, we've got to surrender to God's will and fulfill the calling that he gave us. I think in the little things, in the big things, we can know that God's will is good for us even when it hurts. We can drop to our face and appeal to him in fervent prayer, and we can be filled with the strength of the Holy Spirit to accept his will and face what comes. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you, God, that you are patient and you are merciful with us. And Lord, I pray you teach us to regularly be on our knees in prayer. Lord, to come to you with all the anguish that we have, the suffering we may feel. And Lord, I pray that you give us the strength to face what you have called us to. And Lord, these callings may never be easy. These callings may never be fun or enjoyable. God, they may be very difficult. And Lord, I pray you teach us to die each day to ourselves. And Lord, to live in light of the Holy Spirit in the callings that you've given us in the places where we serve in our workplace, in our family, in our home, in our neighborhood. Lord, teach us to put ourselves aside. And Lord, for us to come and know that the Christ who died for us makes us alive in, in you.
God, help the Holy Spirit to call us each day to confession and repentance and to live for you. We thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.